Hello, you're listening to a Zen Studies Society podcast. To learn more about our community of Zen Buddhist practitioners, please visit zenstudies.org. A scholarly layman and a monk came to visit Master Qiwan Xinghua and asked her to write an inscription in a copy of the Lotus Sutra that the layman had written out in ink mixed with his own blood. She refused. When they insisted, she asked, where does the blood come from? Who is the one who copied out this sutra? If you can answer this, then you'll be able to break open the burning house and allow the true method to reveal itself. If the layman wants to truly experience this, then the most fitting thing would to be consign this copy of the sutra to the flames so that not a single character remains. Then you will be happy. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good morning. Good morning. Good evening. I don't know where you are, everyone. We are here in Syracuse. And I'll speak up because I don't know if I was supposed to have a mic or it's okay. The sound is okay, we think. For Zoom. That's what it is. Okay. I will. I will speak up. Uh, here in Syracuse, we have an amazing day uh, for winter session. It's uh, the snow has covered the ground. The ground is white, and the sky is clear blue. The sun has been beaming down, and it's just as pristine as could be imagined in the winter. Uh, Hoenji honors the seasons, the four seasons, in our sessions four times a year. And we're at, uh, at an amazing time, really. Really great fortune to be at winter session. And we're so blessed to be able to be together after we've isolated and tested and um, have come together here and all coming together. I've been trying to tune into that, how we are. We are all connected. Very good fortune. And wintertime, I remember as a child wintertime, and I'm sure many, many people relate to this, this just boundless joy of being in the snow. You know, I think because you're small, the snow is great and, and you're just bound in it. And, and looking out, just being quiet and looking out, seeing the, the snow covering the, we had big spruce trees and the boughs would be covered with snow. And, uh, you know, this experience of, of just the snow on your face and the snow in your mouth and 
what it tasted like. So fresh. And I know for me, some people are uh, love the wintertime and they're out there, ski bunnies, and really enjoy it. I, I do enjoy it once I get out cross-country skiing or something, but I'm one of many people as we get older, especially the idea of winter, the thought of winter, uh, kind of is something that's encroaching, it's to be endured, it's kind of dreaded, it's going to be cold and brutal and harsh, and the cold is kind of brutal and harsh today. Um, but I get, I get more uh, concerned about the thought of it, you know, and um, paying the heating bills and putting on winter tires and, and seasonal affective disorder, you know. So, so it's a different experience. And to be fair, you know, it's more complex. We, our bodies uh, respond to cold differently than we did when we were younger. We have responsibilities, etc. But this sense of kind of wanting to get out of it, you know, I want to escape the cold, dreams of going to Florida, <laughs> becoming a snowbird. And yet, uh, winter is unique and mysterious. The plants have gone dormant. The, uh, there's a certain mystery about it. Where, where did everything go? What happens to animals? What happens to the plants? And then I'm amazed where they all come from. You know, uh, I think of being at, at the monastery at BBZ in the spring, and these things just pop out of nowhere, turtles and frogs and salamanders. It's a miracle. Things start to pop out of the ground. But in the winter, we're not really sure, you know. Not really sure. It seems endless somehow. So it has a lot of mystery. And I relate to, uh, you know, we watch things die in the winter. We watch the certain plants die. It kind of has a, a ring of death to it. Uh, both of my parents. Uh, past were, they were both diagnosed with terminal illness on Christmas Day, many, many years apart. And then they each died, they both died in, in uh, February, uh, one on the 18th and one on the 19th, again, decades apart. So there's just kind of a sense of, of death about winter too. But we have so much to learn from honoring winter. And we're so fortunate that we can be here and do that together. The starkness of winter, the, the solitude, the simplicity, is, is so precious. And it allows us a stillness that we can become still. It's kind of easier when there's no motorcycles going by, <laughs> parades outside, and summer fun. But the stillness is, is so precious. Look out and bare minimum, you know, nothing extra. 
So with this, it kind of sets the stage for us to, to settle down, to refine and simplify, and uh, allow that itchy, itchy, I want more to, to take a break. So we can honor that rest. And I was thinking of winter almost like, we think of the seasons as circular, and as, as if the, in the end, so there's the beginning, and around very, very intentionally, very focused. It drifts off and there's a certainly space, space to, to stop. So we learn from winter to be patient, to endure, and to deal with the unknown to an extent. So, and at the same time, we get to see it. We get to see it like a child when we slow down. We slow down and notice, become still, and just observe, just witness, just experience the wonder. Tip of water come off the icicle in the sunshine. A whole world there. So the reading I started out with is about Tiwan Shengang, and she's a Zen master of the Rinzai lineage who lived in the, during the final days of the Ming Dynasty in China. Uh, and she was born in 1597 and died in 1654. And so she saw the end of the Ming Dynasty and the beginning of the next. Um, it was a, a time of uh, uh, abundance. Uh, there had been a lot of trade, you know, internationally. There was uh, quite a bit of foreign influence and the, and, and influence of China and other parts of the world and. Uh, so they, they did well at that point. And she, this woman came from a family uh, who were elite to some extent. There was a kind of a middle class, and upper middle class educated people. And uh, from an area in the, in the north, Hangzhou, uh, not too far north, near Shanghai. <laughs> Uh, but it was a, an area where there was a, a lot of trade, a, a lot of um, ins and outs, coming in and coming out. So uh, she was educated. She was able to uh, to learn to to read and and was quite sharp as an early, as a child. She was uh, showed religious proclivity. She she would. Um, bow to the Buddha and recite the Buddha's name. And when she became old enough, she read sutras. And she um, proclaimed that she would be a vegetarian. And her parents forbade it. And so she decided she would not eat. She went on a hunger strike. <laughs> uh, they gave in. And uh, so, 
So this is a really interesting, determined young person. And as a teenager, she begged to be, to enter religious life. And she was the only child of these parents, so that was out of the question. She didn't want to marry. She was really single-minded. And yet, you know, nonetheless, but being a woman, she was promised and engaged to a man. Uh, and uh, they were about to be married. It was kind of a long engagement. They were about to be married, and she was 18 years old, and he died. Well, he was a civil servant, and he died. And, you know, she would have had a comfortable life. Um, but she was single-minded and had this intention. At the time, uh, she was indebted to her in-laws, even though she wasn't even married. She was supposed to go and take care of them. So uh, being very clever, she wrote a letter and said, listen, I'm really kind of be a burden. And what I've done, uh, she took her dowry and she bought a piece of land. And she offered the land to her, to her in-laws and said, this is where your, you know, your Progeny can go and pay respects to their ancestors. And so she found a way out of that. Um, she wanted, a, she still wanted the religious life, and she needed to be at home and taking care of her parents. Her father died, um, and uh, she was able to find a way to get to a teacher, and finally and to, she wanted to enter the monastery. She didn't just want to be a nun. She really wanted to study uh, Zen studies, you know, Chan. She wanted to do koan investigation. So she presented herself to the teacher, and he found out that, uh, that it was within three years since her father died, and she should have been home taking care of her mother. So she was dismissed. And, Tiwan must have been just heartbroken, really downtrodden. I, I think she felt as if she was incapable and not good enough. She berated herself and, and hated herself for being so stupid. So she, she dug in deeper, and she dug in, and she spent another year meditating and, and working by herself. She went back and uh, she also, um, her mother had died also and she actually built a hut near their tombs, near the cemetery and, and spent her time there. She got rid of all her possessions. So she was accepted into training and she trained for the next several years. And by the time she was 43, something like this, she was accepted and seen as uh, a Dharma heir to the teacher. Um, this woman ended up having seven Dharma heirs. And we know so much about her because uh, one of her Dharma heirs wrote about her and maintained her writing and her, her um, poetry. So um, she was under very rigorous training in the monastery, and I think it was much harsher than anything any of us are familiar with. It was a very difficult time. 
She was recognized and given Dharma transmission and spent the next nine years in meditation outside the monastery in her own. Uh, in 1647, she was invited to become the first abbot of a new monastic temple uh, set up by a wealthy family um, in the silk trade. Before long, there were hundreds of nuns, and she was wildly popular and very well respected. Um, they did not. Um, they did not uh, do alms, you know, begging for alms. They actually. Uh, they actually um, preached to lay people, uh, did ceremonies, invited them in, and she had many, many lay students as well. And that's how they were supported. And uh, so, you know, these lay students, there were quite a few people who were well-educated, like I said, at that time. And uh, so this scholarly layman, a literati, uh, and the monk came to visit Master Tiwan Chenggong, and they asked her to write a description and a copy of the Lotus Sutra, and this Lotus Sutra had been written out by this man with ink mixed with his own blood. So she refused. And you know, this man had invested himself must have been months and months, perhaps years. Lotus Sutra has 28 chapters, taking the blood from his own body. And he was almost literally giving up part of his body for the sacrifice. So obviously, you know, he's trying to earn merit. He's trying to impress and gain approval to be good enough, and she refused. She knew that there were no shortcuts. And she'd been shortchanged herself. She'd been, uh, sorry, dismissed, and, and she knew there were short, no shortcuts. So she knew that there was no, no pretense in the path. So when they insisted, she asked, where does this blood come from? Who is the one who copied the sutra? Just a, a powerful, direct questions. It wasn't to dismiss or belittle. She wasn't pointing out the arrogance, pretentious piety. It wasn't anger, it wasn't reaction, it was deep love, it was a gift. She cut, cut through with these questions. As if to say, I don't care what you've done, who you're trying to impress, I care about the awakening of all beings. Where did the blood come from? It was like an explosion, turned everything upside down. Her questions invited the layman to experience truly relinquishing his body. 
which is a recurring theme of the Lotus Sutra, the very, the very sutra he, he copied out. This attachment to fixed self, I, I don't know what examples I can say are like mixing my blood with ink and writing them out, but I do know the sense of being so attached to what I put forth. But it isn't it isn't what we can really give. It isn't what we really can sacrifice. So Master Tiwan said Answer this, answer these questions. Then you'll be able to break open the burning house and allow the true method to reveal itself. So she used the Lotus Sutra, a parable in the Lotus Sutra, to respond. A well-known parable of, of the burning house. There was a very wealthy man who had this expansive home, more like a mansion, but it only had one door. And the thing was falling apart. It was uh, just a wretched place and filled with uh, all kinds of vile creatures and, uh, you know, cobwebs and timbers. Uh, things were falling down and, and just, it, it should have been bulldozed over, but it was just full of these creatures. There were 500 people in there. It was a, it was a mess. And, and it began to burn. And I just will read to you a little of the description that was given. And it was given of, of all these all these creatures. And then when the fire happened, they were powerless to escape evil beasts and venomous insects, hide away in holes and cavities. Demons also take up their abode therein for lack of merits. They are driven by the fire, cruelly hurting each other, snipping and devouring each other's flesh and blood. Creatures of the jackal tribe, already dead in herds, the bigger evil beasts come striving to devour them. Fetid smoke and burning flames fill and choke the surrounding air. Centipedes and millipedes and all kinds of venomous snakes burned by the fire run contending from their holes. Demons thereupon seize and eat them and hungry demons, their heads ablaze with fire, tormented with hunger, thirst and heat, rush about confused and in distress. Such is the state of that house. <laughs> well, isn't that a description <laughs> of the burning house that we experience sometimes, that we're locked into? But in this parable, this wealthy man's children were inside. Being children, they were oblivious to what was going on and they were too busy playing games. Well, I think back what it was like to be a kid with other kids playing, playing outside, running around, and 
I grew up without many kids, but I would go to visit my cousin, and he had all kinds of neighborhood boys, you know. And we'd run around, they'd be shooting at each other with their fingers and hiding, and, and I, I loved, I was taught never to shoot a gun, so I didn't, didn't shoot with my finger, but I'd run and hide. And, <laughs> it was so thrilling, and so captivating, it seemed so, so real. So these children were in there playing shoot them up. And uh, and the father discovered they were in there, he went in and he, it's just, you know, said, You have to come out now. I'm ordering you. You can stop playing and you come out of the house. No, they, they didn't care. So uh, so it was really scary and heartbreaking. So he thought, skillful means, he thought. You know, they want to play, okay? I'll, uh, I'll invite them out to play with these wonderful toys, these carts I have all set up for them. I'll tell them that there was these wonderful toys. As soon as they heard that, they were pushing and shoving each other and trying to get out. And uh, so this burning house, that the scholarly layman had been locked within. And that we had become locked within. As words fill our brain, opinions, thoughts. So she said, if the layman truly wants to this experience this, break open the burning house and allow the true method to reveal itself, then the most fitting thing would be to consign this copy of the sutra to the flames, throw it in the fire so that not a single character remains. Be willing to truly relinquish yourself. by looking into this matter, exhausting the words and emptying the thoughts. And it's not just that it would be gotten rid of, but it, I imagine it was winter time and there was a fire, you know. Purify, to transform. And I ask what I hang on to that I feel so, so precious, as if it's with my own blood that I believe myself. To throw it in the fire so that not a single character remains. Then you will be happy, she said. And we do that on the cushion. We get to do that on the It's so simple. Who is the one transcribing these sutras, laying down these stories in our heads? But we get to get out of the way with stillness, with introspection, contemplation, just 
emptying out, just counting breath, just asking who. We can become like ice, transparent. Get out of the way. I think of There is really nothing you can do. This concern we have about, am I good enough? Shows up in all kinds of places. Our interactions with each other can be almost like commerce. Tell me about yourself. Oh, do these facts add up? But to have the same kind of introspection and becoming plain and simple and still, even with each other, to open up an experience like a child experiences. I remember uh, I was in a, a meeting recently and there was a topic about uh, higher power. You know, it's so hard sometimes to let go and take in this higher power and have faith. And it was pointed out in a chapter we discussed that it's kind of like electricity. We use it all the time. We don't really understand how it works. We have faith it'll be there. And we freak out when it isn't. <laughs> and there are some people who rely on it for their lives. A friend of mine passed away. She had diabetes and she was on dialysis three times a week. Had electricity was the only way for that to happen. And I remembered an uh, experience as a child, um, probably eight or nine years old, and I was staying with my friend for the weekend. Their parents brought us to this home to visit a man who was ill, and uh, he was uh, evidently had, had polio when he was young, and he was in an iron lung. And it was really kind of mystifying and shocking. And we walked in, and, uh, and there he was in the middle of the living room in this giant metal tube, and his head was sticking out. I was mystified. Does he need to be there 24 hours a day? I, I had no idea. 
And my friends were kind of nervous. And we encountered each other. And we had a good conversation. And I thought back about that experience. And I thought how, uh, how he made me feel right at home. And here he was trapped in this thing, but he wasn't trapped. And he was able to engage with me. And I thought, I had an experience talking to him. I didn't have to be good enough. I didn't have to be a certain age. He didn't talk down to me. I, I didn't have to kind of come from the right family. I didn't need any qualifications. I just had to be there. And I know that it brought him joy as well, just to be present with each other. So, that goes away when we pay attention, doesn't it? That having to be good enough, others having to be when we just pay attention more. And and that being present on the cushion and clarifying our minds does bring happiness. The Padamapada says, if the mind is clear, whatever you do or say will bring happiness that will follow you like your shadow. So in this winter session, we have this chance, we have this opportunity to become still, to pay attention, to become transparent, and to move away from the childish games of the burning house and to become childlike with an innocence and an awe. Beholding this precious moment right here, right now, seeing it in the stillness of a mind of winter. So I'll close with a poem from Wallace Stevens, The Snowman. One must have a mind of winter to regard the frost and the boughs of the pine trees crusted with snow and have been cold a long time to behold the junipers shagged with ice and spruces rough in the distant glitter of the January sun and not to think of any misery in the sound of the wind in the sound of a few leaves, which is the sound of the land, full of the same wind that is blowing in the same bare place. For the listener who listens in the snow and nothing himself beholds, nothing that is not there, and the nothing that is.
This has been a Zen Study Society podcast. If you found it to be of interest, please consider making a donation by visiting zenstudies.org donate. Thank you for listening.